Why don't we turn in our Bibles to Ruth, chapter 1, the passage that Amy read for us at the beginning of our service. If you'd like to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you, you'll find the reading on page 222, Ruth, chapter 1. As you turn there, let me just tell you, I absolutely adore the Old Testament. It is my favorite. Um, Old Testament narrative, especially, is my favorite. makes my heart sing. I've been looking forward to doing Ruth now for weeks. Um, and you'll need to know, just as we start on our journey through Ruth together this morning, that I operate from a framework that understands the Bible to tell one story. A story that begins in the garden in Genesis and ends in a garden in Revelation. And I believe that the hero, the central figure of this great story, is Jesus. And so if you ask me, who is the hero of Ruth? The hero of Ruth is Jesus. And it's my prayer that as we work through this amazing and true story, that you'll walk away saying Jesus is the hero of Ruth as well. So why don't we bow and pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you that you have given us in your word amazing promises for us to stand on. You've given us the promise that you are the Savior and the Lord of all who come to you by faith. And it's our prayer this morning that as we come before you with our Bibles open and we give ourselves to this amazing story in the book of Ruth, that you would lift our eyes beyond ourselves and even beyond what's happening simply on the face of the pages of Scripture and lift us to Jesus, who is the central figure of your whole revelation. We ask that we would bow before Jesus, that we would treasure Jesus, that we would be in awe of Jesus, that you would remind us this morning that he is Lord and that he is Savior. We pray that you would do that through Ruth. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, there was a film that came out that went by the name Lion. Maybe some of you saw it. Lion was an adaptation of a book called A Long Way Home, which tells the story of a young Indian boy who, with his brother, would go to a train station to steal coal in order to trade for food and milk and other necessary items. But the little boy named Saru, on one trip with his brother, fell asleep on a bench. And when he woke up, he went looking for his brother, couldn't find him, he went onto a train and fell asleep on the train. When he woke up, he realized the train was moving. He traveled from India to Calcutta, where he couldn't really communicate with anyone. He was thrown into an orphanage, and then eventually adopted by an Australian family and grew up in Tasmania. Well, when he was in college, he discovered this X factor known as Google Earth, and he began to research the town in which he lived. And eventually, he found the town that he grew up in and was able to take his adoptive family back home and reunite with his birth mother. Tremendous story of being lost and then being found, of wandering away from home and then returning. We're drawn to stories like this because we love stories with happy endings. 
I think deep down, each and every one of us knows in the core of our being what it is to wander and to long for home. Well, Ruth is one such story. It's a story of being separated from a homeland and then returning. It's a story of wandering from the Lord and being brought back. It's a story of experiencing emptiness and then subsequently the Lord's fullness. It's a story that takes us in the first verses from death to the final verses and life. It's a story of God's providential working in one family to not only bring them salvation, but to cause them to stand in the line of great David and great David's greater son, Christ himself. What I want us to see this morning as we open Ruth chapter 1 is this. The grace of God is able to overrule our sinful actions and our sinful attitudes. Grace. Now as we look at the chapter in front of us, hopefully you have it open on your lap, you'll notice that we have to think about this passage differently than, say, we think about Philippians. It's a story, a true story, but being a story has all the elements of story, setting, characters, plot, conflict, climax, resolution. And so in order to wrap our minds around what takes place here in this first chapter, we need to think in terms of scenes. And what we see in the first scene of our passage in verses 1 to 5 is a man named Elimelech who moves his family from Bethlehem to Moab. In the middle of the chapter, in verses 6 through 18, we see the Lord who comes to visit his people. And then finally, in verses 19 to 22, there's a woman named Naomi who then moves her family from Moab to Bethlehem, there and back again. I want us to see first this movement of the passage where Elimelech moves his family to Moab. Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now at first glance, verse 1 seems like it's simply setting up the context in which the story takes place, and it is doing that, but it's doing something more. Verse 1 is an invitation for anyone who's familiar with the Old Testament to read between the lines. Now anybody who's on the staff here at First Baptist is laughing because I talk all the time about staying on the line of the Bible, and now I'm going to teach them to read between the lines of the Bible. But we're invited to do so by the writer of this text himself. There are no wasted words here. The first marker that the writer gives us is that this story takes place in the days when the judges ruled. What I want you to do is I want you to look at one page over in your Bible at the very last verse of the book of Judges. There, the writer says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this period in which the judges ruled is a period of political unrest. There's no king in Israel. It's a period of spiritual decline, which always and inevitably leads to moral 
decay. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone was their own king, their own god. They made their own rules. And so the writer of Ruth says in the days when the judges ruled, in this period of political and spiritual and moral decline, there was a famine in the land. Now that is not just the impetus to get the people out of Bethlehem and into Moab. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord says in the Mosaic Covenant, one of the curses of disobedience is hunger. So here we have spiritual decline, moral decay, and a famine, and the writer is inviting us to understand that what's happening is that the Lord is graciously sending a famine so that his people will turn and repent and seek him, and when they seek him, they will find him. But that's not what happens in the text, is it? Not only does it happen in the days when the judges ruled, not only is there a famine in the land, but a man of Bethlehem, it's a play on words here, Bethlehem, Beit, house, Lechem, bread. So a man in the house of bread in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. The house of bread is now the land of the dead. And this man named Elimelech comes up with a master plan to move. I don't know if you've ever had to tell a child that you're moving. Not fun. But Elimelech gathers his two boys, Malon and Kilion, and he says, Kids, I, I gotta tell you, things are not looking good here. There's a famine, we don't have food, our prospects are few, so I think we're gonna move, and we're gonna move to Moab. Now, any Jewish person reading Ruth would know immediately, Moab? Who moves to Moab? One of the boys would have said, Dad, isn't that the place that's named after the boy that was born to Lot when his daughter got him drunk and slept with him? In Genesis chapter 19, who moves to Moab? Those people are gross and weird. Another boy would have said, Dad, isn't those, aren't those the people who in Numbers 22 through 24, when we were trying to pass through to the promised land, stood in our way and wouldn't let us get through? They're pagans. And they're the enemies of God. Why would we go there? And then finally, the boys say, Dad, isn't that the place where the women seduced our forefathers so that they committed sexual immorality in Numbers 25 and then worshipped false gods and then they were all slaughtered? Not only is it gross, not only is it weird, not only are those people pagans, this place is dangerous. Who moves to Moab? And right away, the stage is set for us to understand what happens next. Because what we see in the subsequent verses, in verses 2 through 5, is that things go from bad to worse. Oh, if it were only a famine. But, Elimelech moves to Moab. Rather than repenting, rather than being a spiritual leader, they run. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not suggesting that all of our suffering is tied directly to our sin. But the writer of Ruth 
wants us to get this picture in our minds that as Elimelech tries to avoid the consequences of national sin, things go from bad to worse. In ten years' time, Elimelech's dead, so are his two boys. His wife Naomi is left with two daughters-in-law of Moabite descent. He ran. Now each and every one of us knows at one level what it's like to run from the consequence of our sin. I was watching recently a, a sitcom in which this boy borrows a fur coat from his mother. Maybe some of you saw this. And one of his friends gets a, 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 like a fruit drink all over the coat. And so the answer is to try and spot clean it. So they try and spot clean it, and then they try to dry it. And as they try and dry it, it catches on fire. And then once it's on fire, they put it in the shower and turn the faucet on. So they're just pouring water on this fur coat. Every attempt to make it right on their own only makes matters worse. Maybe some of us are a little bit more highbrow. We think of Lady Macbeth in the Shakespearean play. She's overcome with guilt because she's forced her husband to kill the king of Scotland. And it's as if there's blood on her hands. And so in a moment of madness, she says, oh, there's a spot, outdamned spot in the Bible sense. But the more she washes, the more she realizes she can do nothing about it. Elimelech devises his own plan in order to come out from underneath the gracious discipline of his covenant Lord. And every attempt makes things go from bad to worse. Have you ever tried to run? But the good news and the narrative that we have before us is that every time we try to run, every time we play Elimelech and try to get out from under the Lord's discipline, we find that we can't run far because our God chases. Number two, the Lord visits his people. Now, if you are familiar with the story of Ruth at any level, you're probably taken by the amazing sign of commitment that Ruth gives to Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will go where you go. I will lodge where you lodge. And many of us find in that declaration the climax to the whole story. But I want to suggest to you that when we read the Bible with Jesus at the center, we find that the climax, the high point, the most amazing thing that happens in this text is verse 6. As everything is falling apart around them, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab, here it is, that the Lord had visited his people. The Lord had visited his people. Now what this does not mean is that God came over for tea 
to find out how things are going in Bethlehem. What it means is that the Lord has come to make Bethlehem Bethlehem indeed. He's come in power and grace to restore their fortunes. Anybody who's reading Ruth chapter 1 thinks to themselves, the Lord visited his people. I seem to remember Moses using that language. You remember that the people were in Egyptian bondage, slaves to Pharaoh, and they cried out to the Lord. And God came in covenant mercy, and he appears to Moses in a burning bush, and he says, I'm going to come, and I will judge your enemies, and I will free you from bondage. I'm going to save you by grace and grace alone. So Moses and Aaron, they go back to the people and they begin to recount to all of the elders of Israel everything that the Lord had told them. And in Exodus chapter 4, as Moses recounts it for us, he says this, the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people and that he had seen their affliction and bowed their heads and worshipped. The Lord had visited his people in Egypt and freed them from bondage. He would visit them in their famine and restore to them their fortunes. And as Luke, the writer of the gospel, opens up his Greek translation of the Old Testament, he says, you know what? I've got one word to describe all who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. So as he writes in Luke chapter 7, he recounts a story of Jesus raising a young man from death to life. And all of the people around him are amazed. And Luke writes in 7.16, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Jesus is the hero of Ruth. Because all of God's saving acts all throughout redemptive history ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. When God truly visits his people, he becomes a human being to live in our place and to die for our sin. To rise again so that rebellious men and women can come home. Have you come home? Because when the Lord visits his people in saving mercy... It's an invitation to those who have wandered far away and those who have never known, come home. That's just what happens. Naomi has three interactions with her daughters-in-law here where she passionately pleads with them not to return with her. She says, first go. The Lord deal kindly with you. Hopefully in your father's house you'll find a husband. We begin to get this picture being painted of Naomi that she is more concerned with the marital status of her daughters-in-law, more concerned with the loss that she's experienced than she is with this miraculous act of God in visiting his people. Go. Maybe you'll find a husband in your father's house. Secondly, verse 10 or I'm sorry, verse 11. Turn back. Why will you go with me? I don't have any sons in my womb. In this culture, if a man dies, 
without having children. It's his brother's responsibility to raise up offspring so that his, his brother's name will be carried on. So Naomi says, I don't have any children. I don't have any sons. There's no prospects here for you. By the way, I'm old. I mean, even if I were to meet a man tonight and have children, would you really wait two decades before you have children of your own? Go back. Go back to those old pagan gods. Go back to your mother's house. You'll find someone there. Now Orpah, she takes the logical way out and does just that. But Ruth, Ruth seems to understand something more important than a husband. Ruth seems to understand that the Lord has visited his people. And so she proclaims to Naomi, don't convince me to leave. Where you go, I will go. I will travel with you. Where you lodge, I will lodge. I will sleep where you sleep. Your God will be my God. I will worship with you. Where you die, I will die. I'll be buried with you. Nothing can convince me to leave. Because your God has visited his people. Now there is substantial academic kind of quarreling about whether or not Ruth is actually converted. One commentator says, I I think comically, although some would interpret Ruth's declaration as a sign of conversion, it is better viewed as an affirmation of a transfer of membership from the people of Moab to Israel and of allegiance to the Moabite God, to Yahweh. So conversion. She trusts in the God who visits his people. And so thirdly, and finally, Naomi moves her family to Bethlehem. Now Naomi becomes a very tragic figure at this point in our story. And we need to understand why. We don't want to be unkind to Naomi. She's experienced incredible loss. But Naomi has let her experience alter her view of God. Naomi left Bethlehem hungry and with a family. She now returns with the prospect of food and with one daughter-in-law. And so in verse 19, as she returns, the two of them come to Bethlehem and the entire town is stirred up because of the women. You can almost see the rumor mill start to turn. Is that Naomi? Boy, it looks like life's been rough to her. Are you sure that's Naomi? Why don't we go talk to her? Are you Naomi? And in a moment of raw honesty, she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Her face wouldn't have said pleasant. Her demeanor wouldn't have said pleasant. But her name means pleasant. Is that pleasant over there? And she says, I'm the woman that you're thinking of. But don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitter. Because the deep roots of 
bitterness and incorrect thinking about her Lord and God has taken its full effect. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. And as she explains why it is that she's bitter, look at what she says. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why would you call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Look at what Naomi has done. Naomi has taken her experience. I've been bereaved of my husband and my, my sons. And she can't see past her experience unless she sees through the grid of her emotions. I'm bitter. So when she adds her experience and her emotions the only conclusion that she can come out the other side with is that the Lord has testified against me. Which means he has brought me into his courtroom and he has found me guilty. He has declared himself to be my enemy. How else can I explain that I've lost my family and I'm so bitter? God hates me. Now that is 100% logical and 100% wrong. Naomi, at this point, believes in a God who is sovereign without grace, powerful without mercy, and just without love because she's no longer listening to the book. No one after the exodus from Egypt would not have Exodus 34.6 tattooed on their hearts and their eyelids. The Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's testified against me. He is my enemy. Why? Because I hate him. 100% logical. 100% wrong. And as she returns, she does so completely embittered. Unable to see that the Lord in his mercy has visited his people. Unable to see behind her circumstances to a God who has just redeemed a Moabite woman who stands right at her side. And yet Naomi says, I came back empty. I've got nothing. I find it very difficult not to see parallels between Naomi and Martin Luther. Many of you will know the story of Luther. That as a monk, he was absolutely obsessed with pleasing God, of keeping righteousness, of doing all of the right things to please the Lord. And at one point after his conversion, he says this of his life. He says, my situation was that. 
although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. And it wasn't until he opened the book of Romans and recognized that the righteousness of God is not that righteousness by which God condemns sinners, but it's the righteousness that he gives freely by faith to everyone who believes in Jesus. And from that moment on, the day broke. Experience, interpreted by emotion, will always lead to the wrong equation. But truth that then creates emotion our emotions that you and I can celebrate because they're grounded in reality. Don't call me pleasant. Call me barren. Yeah, the Lord's visited his people. He's overruled Elimelech's sinful actions, but what about my sinful attitudes? Well, the writer leaves us a little, little treat at the end of the chapter. Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You know what happens at barley harvest, don't you? Harvesting. And there's this wonderful little tidbit of grace in the Mosaic Law that says if you're a sojourner, you can go and pick up the gleanings of other people's fields. And I've heard that out there in the fields of Bethlehem, there's a boy named Boaz. He's ready to get hitched. And he might, in fact, he will change Naomi's life and Ruth's life, and if you are in Christ, your life eternally. But for that, you got to come next week. God's grace overrules our sinful actions. He brings us back from exile and into his presence and overrules our sinful attitudes. He pursues us even when we think wrongly about him. There's nothing better than to be able to say to this God of grace, Jesus, you are mine. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning understanding that in many ways the story of Elimelech and his family is our story. When we see our own sin, our first instinct so often is to run and to try and clean up our mess on our own. We despise your discipline. We spurn your love. But yet you still pursue us even more. You visit us again and again with your never-ending fountains of grace. And so, Lord, we praise you. 
And we pray that you would help us always to have minds that are formed by what you have said, because your word is truth. And we pray that in light of that, that we would rejoice. Sometimes we would mourn. We pray that you would make us people who treasure your word and who know that at every step of the way, Jesus is the hero. We pray in his name. Amen.